Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy and international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we're going to ask the question about how investing in frontier markets should be on every impact investor's radar. Now, we have covered impact investment extensively on the Global Podcast as an avenue to lead towards greater social impact and sustainable development, whether in conflict zones or in a humanitarian setting via humanitarian impact bonds or HIBs of the International Committee of the Red Cross. But impact investment doesn't end there, and there is a key opportunity for investing in frontier markets for greater impact. Now, joining me to discuss this is Gavin Sarkin, the founder and managing editor of New Markets Media and Intelligence, as well as the author of Frontier, Exploring the Top 10 Emerging Makers of tomorrow. Now, Gavin has been a prominent writer, broadcaster, and commentator on developing countries for over two decades. His book, Frontier and Investment Travelogue Across 10 Countries, was acclaimed as a must read by the Financial Times as it explores countries that have the potential to become the biggest economic success stories of the coming decade. Previously, Gavin has led Bloomberg's team of journalists uncovering the world of derivatives that triggered the global financial crisis, which won him the Society of American Business Editors and Writers Best in Business Award and the Society of Professional Journalists Deadline Club. And if he hasn't ended there, he has not, because he has also founded New Market Media and Intelligence in 2015 to help increase understanding of the opportunities and the challenges in developing countries and has been interviewed by The New York Times, Wall Street Journal and Barron. So without further ado, Gavin, welcome to the Global Podcast. Hey, great to be on, Jesse. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, So... As we, we talk about this term, frontier markets, uh, the, the, there's probably going to be a great many in the audience that are wondering, okay, what does that mean? Perhaps they're getting these notions of Colorado and the Wild West as the new frontier coming in, but clearly <laughs> that's not what we're talking about here. So uh, I guess there needs to be some explanation. What are frontier markets precisely? So frontier markets are um, defined usually by reference to some of the index providers like MSCI is the big US index provider that that provides a guideline to how fund managers categorize their portfolio. So, you know, like like on a like on a eating menu, you decide whether you're going to be vegan or whether you're going to um, want Lebanese cooking or whatever, you know, from investment, investors will decide 
what kind of parameters they want on their portfolio. And so frontier markets are the countries that are categorized as being pre-emerging markets. So they're not yet of the level where you would consider them emerging markets, usually because their stock markets, if it's on the equity side, just aren't as developed. They don't have as many stocks that you can buy and sell easily. Um, maybe they don't have too many sectors represented in the economy. So maybe you can invest in the mineral sector. But, you, you know, if you wanted to get a bank or exposure to retail, there wouldn't be very much on offer. Very often it's down to um, some concern about the law in a country and how the law is applied. So whether as an investor you can feel confident that your property is going to be your own and that it's not going to be challenged one day at a whim uh, by a regulator or by an authority that decides, okay, we, this was the law yesterday, now we're going to change it to something else. Right. Interesting. So there's a clear definition between a frontier market and an emerging market. So we could say, in a way, frontier market is the pre-step before it becomes an emerging market, or does it have the potential to forever be in, in a certain limbo? Exactly. And the, the you know, it's, the, it's, I suppose, the less developed stage before emerging markets, which can create an issue for frontier market investors, because, you know, as as countries develop, which is a which is a good thing from an investor perspective, then of course they rise up and then they then they qualify for emerging market status. So what happens with the frontier market fund is very often you're sort of left with the ones that haven't quite made it. Um, so it's a kind of a, a category that has a negative connotation oh. as well as being one that you know has the excitement as you say of the frontier and you know you're you're, you're at the cutting edge um but you're you're also you know there's also the 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 idea that these are the countries that haven't quite made it yet but yet is the important thing yeah precisely and and i think the word frontier market is is good marketing in that sense because if it kind of has this bit of a negative connotation as in you know you're the little engine that could but you're not there yet you know, it can be quite, um, uh, I guess, uh, protruding for, I guess, the uh, market in it or the country in its own right. Uh, are countries particularly receptive to being called a frontier market or uh, are they a bit like, no, 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 we're merging, how dare you, and get into a diplomatic spat? Yeah, that's a good question because some, some of the countries um, would certainly think of themselves as being more advanced than frontier Um so to give you an example, uh, Vietnam is is one of the frontier markets that's perhaps uh, um, more uh, more in tune with the people like MSCI. So they they rec the the government recognises the benefits of being elevated from frontier to emerging market status, where they have a lot more investors that are suddenly looking at them. And the regulators and the government are, are consciously looking at the legislation that they need to enact in order to qualify for frontier mark for, for emerging market status. So this is stuff like um, most Vietnamese companies will write reports in Vietnamese. You know that's the language of the country. Mm. Um, but for 
emerging market status, the MSCI would look for a stock a stock market to demand that companies um, simultaneously provide translation of their company documents into another language. It doesn't stipulate what that language should be, but it wants some kind of recognition that this is now an international exchange and therefore you shouldn't just write the documents in one language. And it, it's it's little issues like that, with, with, say little issues, if you're a company and you're having to grapple with suddenly writing simultaneously in different languages, that can be a bigger issue. But, you know, these are these are really structural um, decisions that consciously a company and a stock market regulator particularly needs to take their 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 companies through on a journey. Um, There's others that certainly would rue the frontier market status. Um, Argentina is one that um, has been frontier markets for a long time um, and now has been elevated back to emerging market status because it was emerging markets previously. Um, and I and I think, you know, that that would be a classification that Argentina is um, a country with, uh, with a very um, uh, prosperous past would see as being very much an indictment of um, of the recent crises in the country. Yeah, and I can see that because I, I would have never considered, well, at least in in my mindset previous to this conversation, as Argentina as one of these frontier markets. So that's a really interesting perspective and an outlook in regards to basically what you would what would one assume to be a frontier market and what actually is, um, which is quite intri- intriguing. Um, I guess I, I you know. I guess to the, to, the, to the next question that I have in my mind is when did the investment community begin to really take notice of the opportunities that frontier markets you know can bring? When did they start to pick that up? So I, th- I think if you think of frontier markets, I think predominantly you'll probably be having your mind's eye um, Africa and South Asia. You know, these are, you know, looking at it geographically, um, it's the countries that have had the least opportunity to reach out to investors in the past. And, you know, using Africa kind of as the, I suppose, the poster child of frontier markets, it's had a checkered history. You know, you if you if you go by the Economist front pages, you know, the Economist uh, went from, you know, the 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 um, the Africa rising yeah. commentary to the hopeless continent. You know, and now now we're back on a trend where the the Economist is back in the the new scramble for Africa. I think was the the cover um, a few months ago. And, and it kind of does reflect the sentiment that you see out there from investors um, in that if you're going to push to what many people would consider as the riskier investments, um, you want some kind of comfort that the world's not going to blow up in your face. <laughs> that, um, you, know, you know, if you're choosing to, um, to not take U.S. companies, European companies and instead take those that you have usually more distance in geographical distance but also kind of legal distance in understanding exactly what's going on in the company um, then then you're going to want some kind of 
um, some kind of benefit from that. And the more you charge for that, you know, the greater the interest differential. If you're if you're a debt investor, or the greater the dividends that you would require as an equity investor, you know, that's going to be a direct correlation to how comfortable you feel that the world economy is growing at a stable pace. You know, if we're growing well, then you might think, well, okay, I'm not getting paid too much now in the US or Europe, I'm going to go out to Africa and, you know, and, and go for something that is a bit more exciting, that's going to give me a bit more of a return. So it seems to be a lot of trust seems to be put into place before one really takes into consideration, for example, into investing in a frontier market. There has to be trust in, okay, perhaps, you know, as one says in international political theory, okay, perhaps this institutionalism that we have in this liberal world order will ensure that there will be, you know, greater peaceful um, peaceful pokes as we go forward. You know, I beg to differ on that. But nonetheless, there seems to be, you have to have this trust in that sense. But I guess for those, you know, to, for those investors that say, right, I do want to invest in frontier markets, just as they ask themselves, yes, I'll invest in humanitarian endeavors, I'll invest in conflict zones, blah, blah, blah. What are the specific turns for the investor? Because clearly it's not going to be the purely monetarily one, uh, as one would suspect with, say, investing in a startup or investing in in in, in, in some company or whatnot. What, what is the exact ROI on this? So, I mean, just going back, first of all, to, to the concept of trust, um, you, you know, the concept of trust is is um, is basically executed through due diligence. Um, you know, for, so an investor is going to go to a, a company in Africa and want to put, pass over their money, then the first thing they've got to do is really check out that company, um, that they that they are confident in the in the board, um, that they're confident in the country, you know, so they might hire a political risk consultant or looking at look at some analysis, um, and then they'll then they'll have a price at which they would go into an investment. So, um, the you know what often goes wrong in investment in Africa is that um, somebody is looking at that frontier market or African investment from. Uh, from an office in New York or London, and they really haven't got people on the ground that can evaluate that. So they're paying a lot of money for consultants to go out to look for it, and perhaps they're not really getting the the, the best deal as well on the ground because they don't they don't have that um, that that on the ground network um, or knowledge. And so we, we've seen a big pullout from from. Africa from some of the some of the really big private equity firms in the last few months like Blackstone and KKR um, and and so the, you know in terms of that concept that, that you mentioned of trust um, it, you know it's not trust as you and I might trust each other uh, knowing each other it's, it's the kind of trust that you need between people that really don't know too much about each other so so it, you know instead rather than trust it's really about kind of legal documents and due diligence but but that aside um you know looking at what people would look at uh in terms of investing in frontier markets is pretty much the same as you would if if you're looking at the developed world you know you'd look at the sectors that are of interest to you the ones that you think are, you know have great potential um so within frontier markets probably one of the most attractive sectors right now is tech 
you know so we've seen um uh, for example, Jumia, which is um, the, the kind of African equivalent of Amazon or Alibaba, float on the New York Stock Exchange late last month and raise um, you know, several uh, tens of million dollars. I think it was up to $200 million uh, from that IPO. Um, and and that's, you know, that's a good example where you've had... Um, Sort of the the, uh, the the a few much smaller case studies of success within technology, where technology has completely changed people's lives. Where you've been able to open up um, the financial sector to people who would never have had a chance to have a bank account, let alone a loan. Um, but through apps, through mobile phones, you've been able to reach people and you know have some kind of customer base through that and and Jumia you know the, as the kind of Amazon retail is is suddenly having a breakthrough um, by creating this transportation network you know that's been that's been the big breakthrough for Jumia um, is by uh, creating a kind of uber of people who will deliver parcels and and then having you know depots um, much like amazon would in the in, in the developed world and clearly increasing the potential for example for economic growth because if you have businesses that can be able to take part in distributing their goods to their customers and whatnot that that can obviously have such so much implications for the african continent and as a whole once that really starts to to, to get online in that sense and it, it go you know going off of that and what you've mentioned i want to get into the nitty-gritty of of what you know of why we're also bringing up this topic is how then do these investments lead to greater social impact and development for the country clearly investing in frontier markets there has to be some trust that there's going to be sustain uh, uh, stability and also clearly sustainability as well too so you know how do they lead to that social impact then ultimately so it's, it's different ways of looking at it. I mean, you know, you could make the point, the the argument that anytime you invest in a frontier market, you're kind of you're kind of having some impact because you're putting money into an economy where um, predominantly these are the poorer countries of the world. So you know, even if you're doing nothing else other than employing a bunch of people to um, to to produce your goods. Um, you know, you, you are making some kind of impact. But we also know that a lot of negative industries um, uh, occur, or I shouldn't say negative industries, a lot of uh, negative e effects from industry occur in developing countries, you know, whether it's, whether it's environmental degradation or pollution um, or it's, um, it's exploitation of child labor and uh, so you you need to really have a look at what the effect is of the investment that you're that you're making um and you need to do that in quite a holistic way so you know one way um that we've been working on this is to look at first of all esg so environmental social governance and you look at that as the first step. Um, so if you are providing something that fulfills um, environmental social governance criteria, then that then that's good. You're 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 into 
you're into an investment that that probably is worth worthwhile from an impact point of view um and then you know from that and and this is this is um looking at a methodology that's been put together by actis actis is a 15 billion dollar private equity firm um spun out of the cdc which uh, commonwealth development corporation which was part of the uk government until a couple of decades ago and actis has um has adopted a methodology for how to really look at um, impact and to measure it. And the point of measuring it is so that you can then make comparisons between different investments to understand whether um, whether one investment is not just going to be impactful, but is going to be much more impactful than something else. So it's, it's quite um it's quite a difficult concept to to take on and to actually put into meaningful quantifiable terms because you know you you look at different sectors different companies different geographies and you know how can you possibly compare those and so the 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 white paper that we worked on with actis um takes three very different case studies. So one is a renewable energy project in India. Another one is a university in Brazil. And the other is a diagnostics um, um, pharmaceutical holding in uh, that, that's servicing to sub-Saharan Africa to diagnose illnesses and conditions in sub-Saharan Africa. And how... Actis has gone about that measurement process is is first of all aligning um, the benefits of each project or each company with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So that's kind of the foundation for it. So you know you work out what the benefit is to society and to um, to a population and to to the planet, and then you work out how that fits with the UN SDGs and from that you put numbers on a scale of one to five based on how many people will benefit from that how well served or underserved were those people prior to this investment coming along um, factors like um, looking at the investor themselves or the company themselves and ascertaining whether that kind of project, that kind of benefit would have happened anyway. Let's say it's um, it's an auction for a renewable power plant. Um, somebody was going to win that mandate. So are you actually making that much impact by putting your money behind, you know, one company rather than another company? So that so through that methodology, um, it, it comes up with a score that you can then use to really to to compare as a crude measure as a first measure against different investments and you can also use that measure to see how this project or company or investment is developing over time much like you are, you would i think you mentioned before sort of the IRR or kind mm -hmm. of investment metrics much like you would with IRR you you'd keep referencing how you're doing on that um so with the Actis impact score, you would be able to look at that, you know, and project that forward as well. 
And that's brilliant because then it's providing you this exact report on exactly where your investment is having proper impact on and and to show the, the properly, tangibly, the benefit that it's having. And this hopefully should entice many more investors to take part in that because they can see, all right, this is where it's going, you know, and, and you know, they can get the whole, you know, feel good sentiment, but then see actually, well, you know, this is more than just feeling good. This is actually happening and that and to that extent. But, you know, while while one is seeing that it's actually happening and there's, you know, it's wonderful to be able to measure the impact and all that, of course, at the same time, what are the evident risks actually that investing in frontier markets? I know we talked about, you know, this requires stability and, you know, provided that there'll be world peace and goodwill to all men as the Christmas songs like to go. Um, but, you know, what are those risks that, that do exist? But, you know, even though the benefits are outweighing them, what are they so that one can keep that in mind before saying, you know, I'm going to dish all this cash on this endeavor in this in XYZ frontier market? I mean, the big risks are, um, first of all, you're investing in a, in usually in the domestic currency, you know, you'll often try to hedge it out so that you've got some kind of stability, but you're often taking a risk on the local currency, which um, is subject to, it, it's, it's very often, you know, kind of a benchmark for the, for the confidence in an economy, you know, currency is, is basically, you know, uh, um, a reflection of, of confidence. And so if, if confidence evaporates from that economy, then you'll, you'll usually see the currency weakening. The response to that might be for the central bank to suddenly hike up rates, to, to increase rates by a huge amount so that the currency is stabilized. Um, but in doing that, you know, high interest rates mean that uh, you often push an economy into some kind of huge, horrendous slump um, where people can't afford to borrow anything anymore and, um, you know, consumer spending goes down. So you've got these these gigantic waves that hit across um, frontier markets and, you know, emerging markets too, but it's it's just more exaggerated in frontier markets so you know a, a, you know one example would be somewhere like zambia um where you know you you've had massive swings in the currency that are related to their commodity exports and the, the price of commodities and as those prices go down and um, the the export revenue is expected to go down then you have the currency crashing um and so uh, Another area is political. You know, you're in countries that often, you know, we, we all live in politically volatile countries. You know, we're in, in Britain, um, you know, going through Brexit and, you know, America has its issues um, between uh, the US and China, for example. Um, so, you know, this isn't really to pick out frontier markets as being as being particularly political, politically risky. But... Um, but it's certainly on investors' minds because it's harder very often to separate the politics from the financial. And so financial um, investments will be very much correlated to what, what you think about the politics of the country, not, not, necessarily, so, not necessarily from a, um, a democracy perspective or a, a, 
uh, right and wrong kind of perspective, um, but more from stability, whether policies are suddenly going to change because the other parties got into power or you've got somebody who um, uh, has an axe to grind against um, against a CEO who may also be a politician and and so the the, the new government is going to go after that after that power structure um, and probably the, the third one that I'd add to that which is kind of correlated is corruption mm. so corruption is something that you know again corruption goes on in the developed worlds in the advanced countries um, but we're all very much more aware of it um, in frontier markets and you know from time to time you'll get companies that will get completely um, clobbered by a crackdown on corruption like we've seen in Saudi Arabia like we've seen in um, Vietnam for example exactly in that case and it seems that the word frontier market really does define precisely what that is you are entering a frontier there is there is seems to be quite a bit of an unknown to it but at the same time it still renders it quite exciting because yes there's those particular risks that this could happen and as you says politics and economics and finance really go intertwine and dance of each other but i would also argue so does diplomacy because the that that's extremely uh, a, a close-knit dance and 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 going off of that this uh, diplomatic angle then what about when it comes to approaching the governments of these frontier markets uh, let's say for example you, you are the investor and you say you know what i see the risks i'm going to do it put on my cowboy hat i'm going to go west go to the frontier and you know and invest accordingly and you know approaching the government are governments receptive when they're of course we talked about there's a little bit of a i guess maybe political delicate being a little bit delicate when it comes to labeling a country as a frontier market but are they pretty much open when it comes to these investors coming to say hey i want to invest um into into this particular sector in your country your your frontier market of as of xyz how has been the process overall have they been open to it have they been saying you know get out of my house kind of a deal what what's 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 been the actual um uh, you know facts about it yeah i mean it's, it's extremely varied you know i suppose um you know one polar at one pole you'd have um you know, a government like Venezuela, which is a frontier market, mm. um, you know, and, and which is very you, risky. <laughs> would, you get, would you get a, a, a positive reception from the Maduro administration? Well, actually, you probably would. Mm. But whether you could go through with that, you know, would depend on sanctions regime and, um, you know, where your, your, your particular risk appetite, I suppose. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you have countries that are extremely welcoming and yes there are opportunities real opportunities um to um to take to take part in privatizations um to take on state-run mines or um or production of of um some of the core industries um so it, it's of course as you as you as you'd expect a, a very very mixed picture um i'd i'd say that um the trend is for countries to become more accommodating to private investors you know this is a a decades shift that we've seen 
you know, from, um, you know, which is really about the post 80s, 90s privatizations and, com and, and countries really realizing that they need to have uh, private sector working within their economies in order to, to, to become more efficient, to reduce corruption. Um, I think what, what we're seeing, um, you know, there's some standout countries, Ghana, I would say, as, as a real standout country right now for working with the private sector. I listened, um, I was in Chicago a couple of uh, months ago at um, the University of Chicago Emerging Markets uh, Conference, and uh, I was speaking there with the vice president of Ghana, and the way that Ghana is is working alongside Silicon Valley tech companies, local tech companies in Africa to overcome hurdles like um, land registration, like uh, using technology to map out um, different. You know, every five five square meters has effectively a postcode um, through a through a. a a policy that they're implementing through working with the tech companies. And it's that kind of um, opening up to private enterprise, not just to, okay, here's, here's, a, here's a mine that we want to develop, and so we'll give you the, the, the land in exchange for a contract to work with us on opening this up, but really working with private sector to identify the innovation. That's that's where the most excitement ha happens in frontier markets. And indeed, in fact, Ghana has made the news recently, particularly as if I understand they've opened, I guess, a Google Hub as well, too, with being the first within West Africa. And, and even from our own work of PAX, we've noticed Ghana really, really taking up the leadership in that area for both investment and even um, uh, just in regards to being so receptive. So definitely, uh, that doesn't surprise me about Ghana at all. Uh, I guess it takes, there's yes. a direct correlation there with Ghana's GDP. It's the fastest growing economy in the world um, because it's doing stuff that is suddenly opening up more of the economy. And, and you know, there's also, you know, econ economies, currencies. This is all a confidence factor. And Ghana is, is really um, stoking confidence right now. Exactly, which only shows more in regards to the potential for these for these frontier markets in becoming actually the main markets maybe of the future. And I guess to end this uh, this episode on 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 this topic, I guess in regards to I would love to understand where do you think the trends for investment in frontier markets will go in the next several years and what and what do you think will be the real success stories in the future that will demonstrate to the world you know frontier markets are where you want to put your money in because there's a real potential not just for uh you know real proper impact but real sustainable development and being a contributor to a country's uh, success actually well we touched on this Previously, which is which is the correlation between frontier markets and impact investing, and I think, you know, if you look at if you look at investment, the the biggest jump in assets in any asset class worldwide has been in impact. Impact investing assets at least doubled um, last year to over five hundred billion dollars now, um, and this is this is being. Um, this is the result of a number of factors. You know, one of them 
is families that have wealth that they want to pass along to to their to to the next generation and and really they they're looking to leave a legacy more than just money you know they want to um they they want to help the next generation to um to live responsibly and to use their wealth responsibly and so you, you you've got this huge wave right now of family offices um they're looking after the 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 finances of some of the best known um wealthy families that are looking for investment along impactful lines and if you want to achieve impacts probably the most straightforward way to do that is to look at the poorest countries of the world and how you can best help those economies to to increase um in and and develop in all kinds of different sectors because that also reduces corruption and because that also helps with transparency if it's done in the right way so you know that is the big trend that i see right now the the you know from ourselves as as new markets media and intelligence the amount of inquiries that we get from impact investment firms has 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 multiplied over the past year most of our business now has something to do with impact and and it's it's a very dramatic increase in interest that we've seen from that from being you know if i looked at it a year ago um there was huge skepticism and rightly so you know you had you had companies that were saying that they were impact investors and not really a great way of really challenging that you know, of being able to identify who is impact and who's not now after considerable work during the past year by um organizations like the World Bank's IFC by the Impact Management Project by uh the MPEA the uh, Emerging Market Private Equity Association you've had a, a gathering of minds where you know the, the thousands of organizations got together and said okay this is what we understand to be the principles of how impact should look um and right now what we're doing in the industry is putting all of that together to come up with frameworks that will help to robustly identify and call to account those investment firms that call themselves impactful so that that's the that's the overarching trend i mean if i can say one other trend briefly i think there's going to be more um more more of a dichotomy between different parts of what we call frontier markets you know i think that um at the moment countries are banded together um as being frontier markets or even africa you know we we sort of kind of gloss over uh, 54 countries and and pigeonhole them all into the same basket i think there's got to you know as as our investments and our understanding increases um of these countries then there'll be much more differentiation it's a, it's a bit like um you know the 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 tag world music you know when when people <laughs> didn't listen to too much world music and one everything was called world music you know now i think more people listen to what was called world music you know we we don't we don't blandly categorize everything that sounds you know not like stuff that we're familiar with as um, for music <laughs> yeah i think that's what we'll we'll see 
within frontier markets. Well, I think that's a really good way to end it and describe it, given I'm also someone who used to listen to the genre called world music and get frustrated and say, well, hold up a second. This is so uh, diverse. And I guess that's a good way to put it. And hopefully for what the future of frontier uh, markets and even impact investment will look like. Well, this has been extremely fruitful. It's been lots of food for thought and particularly of of the fact that this is picking up impact investing. And this is why uh, at PAX Second Global and with the Global Podcast, we've been really discussing about this a lot because of the fact of, of, of the topic really catching fire. And it's because definitely we are in this new paradigm shift of sustainability and the need for making the world, you know, this sounds cheesy, but it's true, a much better place than, than, than what we're currently living in. So I do see how impact investing and particularly towards frontier markets is really going to kick off. And it's been wonderful having you on and discuss this and hopefully both excite, empower and inspire our listeners who happen to be investors curious on where to bring their investment towards. So Gavin, thank you very much for coming on the Global Podcast. Thanks so much, Jesu. Great to talk to you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Second Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechandglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M G-L-O-B-A-L dot org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of PAX on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition. And until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!